Hello everyone and welcome to another episode in our sermon series on the book of Romans. My name is Dan Forrest and today we will be looking at Romans chapter 6. The video clip that we were going to start with today is another one from my favorite movie, The Matrix. I love this movie so much I could probably find a Matrix clip that applies to every sermon I preach. Well, in this clip, Morpheus is finally going to reveal to Neo what The Matrix is. Enjoy! What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage. Born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. <sighs> Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Which pill would you take? Well, of course, Neo chooses the red pill, and he's whisked away into another room where Morpheus's team begins prepping him for the unbelievable experience that he is about to have. Bonus second clip! This can't be. Be what? Be real? going into replication. Hey, Pa. Still nothing. Let's go. Let's go. Tank, we're going to need a signal soon. I got a fibrillation. Hey, Pa. Location. Targeting almost there. He's going into arrest. Lock. I got him. Now, Tank. Now. understand why Morpheus says you have to see the Matrix for yourself and that this is his last chance that after he takes the red pill there is no turning back. Well because after Neo wakes up in the real world all those plugs are removed and he's ejected from that embryonic pod. Sure he can temporarily plug back back into the Matrix but long term he'd need to go back into one of those pods and how is that possible? But on a mental level how could he return to life as normal in the Matrix, knowing that that isn't the real world and that he's just being used by the machines? 
Well, now that he's made this choice and he's risen from the waters with a new life in the real world, there is no turning back. And that's exactly the point that Paul makes to the Roman Christians in our chapter today, Romans 6. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 5 verse a little bit just to explain where Paul's coming from before chapter 6. Paul explains that Jesus died for us so that we might be saved from death. Jesus died so that we could have peace with God and be reconciled with him again. Sin, sin entered into the world through Adam's mistaken attempt to be like God. But through Jesus' righteousness, our destiny is not death, but instead eternal life. And Paul writes that where sin increased, the grace of Jesus increased even more. Paul anticipates how his readers will respond to that. So he writes in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If sin actually causes grace to increase more, shouldn't we sin as much as we can so that grace increases more and more? Sounds logical, but Paul is adamant that we have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We have left the matrix. Why would we want to return? Well, Before we go any further, let's just take a moment to discuss what we're freed from. Throughout Romans, Paul talks about sin. And sin is in the singular. It's, it's not plural. What's the difference between sin plural, I mean sin singular and sin sins plural? Well, sins plural describes our actions that lead us away from God and away from God's purposes for us and for this world. In Romans, Paul rarely refers to sins plural. His main point is not that we are saved from our sins but that we are saved from sin. Sin singular is the power and grip of evil in our lives and in our society that keeps us in bondage and causes us to sin, to move away from God. Sin singular is capital S sin. Sin singular affects us individually, but it also affects us corporately and systemically. As a group, as a society, as a country, as a species, there is systemic sin that is greater than the individual members. If Jesus only came to forgive our individual sins and set us free from our sins, that wouldn't be enough. Because that wouldn't get to the root cause of our problems. It would be like if a doctor stitched up someone who was bleeding from a bullet wound. They cleaned their wound, bandaged it up, but never removed the bullet. Well, in that moment, the bleeding would stop, but the bullet inside would cause internal bleeding and infection and even more damage. Jesus didn't come to free us from individual sins, but instead he came to free us from the power of capital S sin. He came to free us from that which causes us to sin and not just to free us individually, but to free all of us corporately. And to make his point, Paul uses the sacrament of baptism, which Jesus and his disciples practiced. They were baptized, and they also baptized all the new followers of Jesus. 
Well, back in their day, if someone became a Christian, they didn't say the sinner's prayer and, and ask Jesus into their heart. That's actually a relatively new practice in the church. Back then, if you became a Christian, the first thing you would do was get baptized. And we see this all throughout the book of Acts. We see men and women decide that they want to follow Jesus and immediately they get baptized. Baptism is a significant ritual because it's a public declaration that Jesus is now Lord of your life. Today, anyone can quietly say the sinner's prayer in their heart and consider themselves a Christian, but other people might not ever know that they're a Christian. Baptism is meant to be a public event where new Christians are unashamed of their decision to follow Jesus. And it's also a communal event where individuals recognize that, they are not, that they're not Christians alone. They are now members of a new family of Christians, the church. I tried to find a picture of uh, my baptism to share with you, but all my photos are packed up in boxes. But I did find this picture on my computer of my dad after he was baptized. I just love the joy and the excitement that's captured here in this moment. Now, I don't believe that anything magical happens to you when you get baptized. I believe it's an outward expression of what God has done and is doing inside of you. There are a lot of metaphors that are attached to baptism. One of them is obviously being purified with water. Once again, I don't believe that the waters of baptism actually purify you, but I do believe that they symbolize the purification that has happened in your heart and in your soul as a result of Jesus cleansing you from the stain of sin. Well, another metaphor that's attached to baptism is the one that we find here in this passage. Baptism as dying with Christ to sin and being raised to life with him. And this was the main symbolic meaning that I was taught when I was baptized at 13. Being lowered into the water represented my decision to join Christ in his death and in his burial. And being lifted up out of the water represented God raising me to new life in the same way he raised Jesus from the dead. And this is explained further by Paul in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified, crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now once again, I don't believe that the act of baptism is what sets us free from sin. And it doesn't even necessarily mark the exact moment when we are set free from sin. When we get baptized, we are symbolically proclaiming what God has done in us. And even in Neo's case, taking the red pill did not set him free from the matrix. The red pill was really only a symbol of his desire to be set free. But also remember, the act of baptism is not only a symbol of what God, of what God has done in our hearts, it's also a symbol of what Jesus experienced and accomplished in his death and resurrection. Look at what Paul is saying here. From the earliest days of humanity's existence, we have been under the bondage and slavery of sin. And sin ultimately leads us and everything to one place, death. Death is the end result of sin in this world. So the only way that Jesus can defeat sin is to defeat death. Death. And how do you defeat death? 
we defeat death by going through it and destroying its power by rising again to new life. Paul says it well in 1 Corinthians 15. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. When the decaying puts on the undecaying and the dying puts on the undying, then the saying that has been written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In order to defeat death, Jesus had to wrestle with death and come out victorious, which he did when he died and rose from the dead. Baptism symbolizes the death of death, what Jesus accomplished in his death and resurrection. Well, Paul explains further in Romans chapter 6. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer, death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Jesus had to die and be raised from the dead only once to defeat the power of death. He doesn't have to repeatedly die over and over again. He only needed to do it once. And because he died and rose again, we too can experience that same resurrection power and eternal life when we follow him in his death. Jesus invites us to participate in his death with him. And the beauty of all of this is, Jesus has taken all all the sting out of death. It's not as painful for us or as difficult for us because he has gone through it first. Now, of course, Jesus isn't calling us to join him in a suicide pact, but he is calling us to die to ourselves and to put to death our old way of life. What this means is letting go of our desire to be in control and to be God. We die to our selfish impulses and we give authority of our lives over to Jesus. We, relinqu we relinquish the throne of our personal kingdom and declare Jesus as Lord. And now going back to Paul's whole argument in this passage, because we have followed Jesus in his death and died to sin, why would we ever go back to a life of sinning? Jesus doesn't go back and die again and again, so there's no turning back for us as well. If the bullet has been removed from our body, there's nothing causing us to bleed anymore. Death no longer has mastery over us. Sin no longer has us in bondage. We are set free. But even though we are set free, we can actually still make the choice to return to it for other reasons. Now I'm going to read the rest of Romans 6. It's a bit long, so sit back and relax and, and just let it soak in as I read it to you now. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? 
By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, in this last half of Romans 6, Paul is saying that even though we are freed from the power of sin, we can still choose to enter back into that world. But why would we do that? Sin only leads to death, but faith in Jesus leads to life. Why do some Christians go back to their sinful life? Why do we sometimes engage in sinful behaviors that we once rejected? Well, I can understand why people would want to return to life controlled by sin. And it's because, as humans, we're incredibly short-sighted. We have a hard time looking past what we're experiencing or desiring in the present moment. In The Matrix, there's this character named Cypher, and he's someone who wants to return to The Matrix. Even though he knows what The Matrix is, and he's had the experience of being in the real world, he wants to surrender his freedom and get plugged back into one of those pods. And at one point, he says this to Trinity, I'm tired, Trinity. I'm tired of this war. I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of this ship being cold, eating the same bleep goop every day. But most of all, I'm tired of that jack-off and all his beep. When Cypher woke up to the real world, it wasn't the paradise that he was expecting. It was difficult. It was unpleasant. The food was gross. The living conditions were awful. And now he's engaged in a terrible war with the machines. And to top it all off, even though he's free from the matrix, he doesn't find the real world all that free. Now he's put himself under the leadership of Morpheus, and he has to do everything that Morpheus says. Because if he doesn't do that, where is he going to live? Where is he going to find food? He needs Morpheus to survive. Which leads him to yell in frustration, Free? You call this free? All I do is what he tells me to do. If I had to choose that, uh, if I had to choose between that and the matrix, I choose the matrix. Cipher recognizes the same truth Paul is explaining in Romans 6. No one is ever truly free. We are all slaves to something or someone. For Cipher, he is either a slave to the matrix or a slave to Morpheus. For us, we're either slaves to sin or we're slaves to Jesus. And our experience under these two masters is completely different. When we submit to sin, the short-term effects are actually pleasant and they can actually seem good to us. 
That's why we engage in these behaviors, because in the moment they feel good. But from the Bible, and even from our own experience, we learn that in the long term, the wages of sin is death. While they might give us temporary feelings of pleasure and satisfaction, in the end, they will suck all of that away. But slavery under Jesus is the opposite. In the short term, following Jesus can be quite unpleasant and even painful. Dying to ourselves is not a fun experience. And in our Romans chapter from last week, Paul acknowledged that following Christ involves suffering. But Paul says we glory in our sufferings because of where they lead us. They lead us to perseverance and character and hope. And in other passages of, in other passages of Scripture, we discover that we can actually find joy and contentment in our sufferings because we know what it says in Romans 6, that this suffering is only temporary and that ultimately it leads us and to the world around us to the amazing gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, we have been set free from the power and bondage of sin in our life and in our world. But we will be tempted to return to that old way of life because at times it will be more pleasurable and it'll be easier. And it's just so nice to be in control of our lives. But consider the end result of going back to that lifestyle. Fast forward the tape to see where it ends, where it leads to. It only leads to more suffering more broken relationships, more misery, and ultimately, death. But thanks be to God, now that our old self was crucified with Jesus, the rule of sin has been done away with, and death no longer has control over us. There is no turning back. God has raised us to a new life, one that will lead to holiness and ultimately to life everlasting. So let us hold on to that hope without wavering, because, who, because the God who gave us this promise is reliable and faithful to us. Let us consider each other carefully, how we can inspire each other to love and good deeds, to those things that lead us away from selfish actions that harm ourselves and harm others. And let us encourage each other more and more, especially in these difficult and tempting times. May the Holy Spirit inspire us, preserve us, and lead us in the way to everlasting life for all. Amen.